Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, um, we're going to take an email. We got a great uh, question from an emailer uh, that kind of asks a Among question. Among the thousands of email questions Tens of we thousands. Get. We've hired- Tens so- of thousands. <laughs> so um, we- There would not be room to keep the books- <laughs> That's right. The emails. Yes, the emails is like the end of the book of John. Yep. So we have here uh, an email, and the, the email is very nice uh, as we only read the nice ones. I mean, we read them all and we you, internalize them. You know them who they, you are that are writing us the angry, mean email. <laughs> so this email comes to us from Sherry, and it's a question about the relationship between John Taylor, who came third we know, and Brigham Young. Um, it's really hard to not say Wilford Woodruff after you say that. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I've never, I've never once in my life said Joseph F. Smith without saying "Remember the F." Yeah, yeah, you know, that's the only way I know him. That's a hundred percent. So she starts off. Uh, let me start off by saying how amazing your podcast is. Oh, 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 sure. This is the reason why we're reading her. Hundred percent. Yeah, I look forward. Although some of our detractors have taken to saying, "I really love your podcast" in the first line, so that we'll read it. And then the rest of it is just questioning whether our parents were married. Yeah, very angry slurs. That's <laughs> I look forward to it every week. When listening to it, I laugh, I cry, and I learn a lot. I really appreciate your efforts in answering questions, adding to our understanding of church history. Church history is one of my passions, although it doesn't mean I know much about it, but I do love learning as much as I can. I fear, or my fear is that I am asking a question that may never get answered, despite what you try to make us believe. I'm sure that you get way too many emails and more than you can get through. Hopefully the praise in the beginning is enough for you to want to keep yeah, going. Yeah, we are just narcissistic is, enough. We're just <laughs> narcissistic enough. And you kind of challenged us. Like, yeah. No one will ever answer my question. There's nothing in that for me. The only thing, honestly, you missed, Sherry, was how handsome we both are, I think. Well, even some wise have limits. <laughs> Uh, the reason I'm not uh, I'm not sure if this will answer uh, will get an answer is first because it's not a really hot topic uh, for the church, and so possibly not very many people would find it Mormon interesting. Mormon battalion, though, is like yeah, right oh my god, it's catnip. Yeah, that's right. I'm very interested in it because it involves a very beloved ancestor, John Taylor. So one of the things, Sherry, before we kind of get into the meat of the um, of the email here, is that. Emails like yours provide a great jumping off point to have kind of a larger discussion. So while um, the specific question you're answering or asking isn't, you know, the hot topic in church history right now, it does provide Garrett to uh, pontificate about um, Which is what most of, the, most of the podcast is just, <laughs> let's start on a different topic and have Garrett ramble about it, never coming to any conclusion, you know. Yeah. So one one of our Clouds really good without water. one of our really good friends, uh, Matt Brown, because uh, I, I occasionally come down and 
visit the Dirk Mots. I live up in Layton, and they live down in Spanish Fork. And so we occasionally will come down and visit their family over the weekend, so we'll go to church with them from time to time. And a friend of ours, uh, when Garrett was a gospel doctrine teacher, uh, one Sunday he leaned over to me and said, every time he gets up to teach a lesson, like we were, it was the Old Testament this year, I have I start a stopwatch to see how quickly he'll get to start talking about Joseph Smith, no matter what the topic is. And in that particular lesson, it was like three minutes fifty eight seconds. Absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Well, and it was it wasn't any sooner because you know I had to say, look, we're studying Malachi or whatever. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. But uh, look, he's the prophet of the restoration. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Play the hits. Yeah. All right. So here is my question. As a descendant of the, of the prophet John Taylor, my great-grandfather passed down to me a two-volume set of books entitled The John Taylor Papers, written by Samuel W. Taylor and Raymond W. Taylor, apparently, apparently also descendants. I've not actually sat down to read these books all the way through as of yet. However, I have jumped to the very end and read the Appendix 2, which is where my question comes from. The title of this appendix is... Never Friends, Brigham Young, and John Taylor, which as Garrett and I were prepping for this, I said that should be the title of, of our memoirs, Garrett and Richard, Never Friends. Yeah, that's, and then people will, <laughs> will, uh, will they'll write apocryphal stories about us saying, <laughs> right. one time I remember them arguing <laughs> about whether or not you should be required to not make mistakes in the books you write about a topic if you don't have any training in that topic and he ripped this very sweet woman with a greek last name (laughs) no no i read this several years ago and have been intrigued by this idea for a long time but i've never really known what to make of it or if there's any truth to it i asked my grandma once if it was true that brigham young and john taylor didn't like each other she explained that it was true because they came from completely different backgrounds john taylor came from a high society english type background and he liked to dress fashionably. Brigham Young came from a farming background and was never interested in that kind of stuff. So their personalities clashed. I don't know if my grandma got her information from this source as well, or if it was just information that was passed down through the family. Since then, I haven't thought too much about it because although it seems something that would interest me, it hasn't. It has nothing to do with my testimony of the gospel or my knowledge that both these men were true prophets of the Restoration. In listening to your podcast, I have been thinking about this idea a little more, especially since you have taught your listeners about identifying real sources and understanding sources that are unreliable. So I have been trying to study this a little more and find other resources, and I have not been able to find any. This book is the only place that I've been able to find any mention of a rocky relationship between these men. Garrett, quick pause. Your thoughts just right there. Well, so, I mean... First of all, Sherry, you've done more uh you've done more sleuthing on a topic than 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 is common in the sense that you've actually tried to find it in other places. And there's a, a one thing, you know, look, we can't all know everything. No one can know everything. So we're always going to find things that we don't know how accurate they are. And that healthy sense of skepticism is 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 a good place to start. Now that doesn't mean that you read something like, well, I don't know if only Nephi said that, then I get, you know, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if someone is making a historical claim and it seems a little odd or weird and you do do some digging and you can't find it readily anywhere else, 
that does not mean it's not true at all. But, uh, the, 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 you know, that's the but that comes after that. It should make us be a little bit more skeptical, right? And which you are clearly demonstrating here in your email. I mean, it's, it, it is a red flag. Now, I'm not saying it's a red flag that's, that's insurmountable. There are certainly things that I've found in my research that no one else knew about because it hadn't been discovered yet. But when someone is writing something definitively in a book, I mean, even the appendix there, the title of it, Never Friends. Now, how in the world do you think you'd be able to verify whether or not someone was never someone's friend? If someone had a, you know, 40 to 50 year uh, uh, relationship with someone, how would you go about doing that? So, so already there's, there should be a healthy sense of skepticism just by the title. Unless you have either John Taylor himself saying, yeah, I was never friends with Brigham, you know, or Brigham Young saying, you know who I don't like, but I'm about to make the next prophet of the church. <laughs> that John that Taylor. John Taylor. He's uh, all right. Yeah, no, I hate no him. I don't like, I can't stand the guy. He's a real issue for me. So Brigham Young who reorganizes the quill. Well, and we're going to get to that. Oh my gosh, I evidence. jumped. Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, you're, you're oh jumping the shark. You're basically, <laughs> I'm, you, you are happy days. That is a as a reference that that uh, no one listening will get. That's good. Right. Wow. If you if you certainly know, certainly if you Jeff the, Hunt, our youngest listener, will not be getting Jeff. If you're listening and don't know the reference to jumping the shark, I need you to YouTube or Fonzie so, actually so, jumping so, a shark. So YouTube is is a thing that old people watch, <laughs> but you, you you might be able to find it on TikTok. <laughs> see if Laura can help you. That's right. Maybe Brian. Um. All right. So uh, let's see. So I have. Reread the chapter, keeping in mind the things that I have heard you say about sources. The first thing I realize is that it begins with someone telling a story of something that happened several decades before. It begins by saying, back in 1935, I interviewed an old gentleman. He told me of, of being in President Young's office at Salt Lake City one morning when John Taylor passed the open door. Little Bo Brummel, Brigham called mockingly. John Taylor stiffened, turned, and came in. Brigham's sardonic comment was occasioned by the fact that Taylor wore a new spring outfit, striped trousers, jacket with velvet collar, fancy waistcoat, a ruffled shirt, a rich cravat with heavy gold watch chain, cufflinks, and a tie clasp. In contrast, Brigham dressed plainly. As John Taylor stopped before Brigham's desk, the contrast between the two men was striking. Taylor, a veritable fashion plate, was tall and muscular, his deep tan contrasting to a snow-white thatch of curly hair. Brigham, obese and stiff, with rheumatism, wore a rumpled shirt with soup stains of the vest, I was told. Boy, that's, that's really painting Brigham in, a, in the nicest of light. Yeah, um, yeah he's, generally he's overweight and stiff, <laughs> and soup stained shirt. Brigham, <laughs> what kind of soup was it? I, I did, the, did they remember lobs, that? From I believe the it was thirty-five remembrance. It was uh, fifty-eight years earlier, and it was lobster bisque. Okay, well, obviously lobster bisque. You'd remember that, of course. Brigham, did they get it at the Lion House Pantry, <laughs> of course. Brigham Young, John Taylor said stiffly, "I sustain you in your office as prophets here and revelator." But he added, "I despise you as a human being." Then with a curt good day, sir, he turned on his heel and marched out. Brigham grinned and again resumed conversation 
with my informant, who told me this was typical of the manner in which the two men said good morning. A, f- um, a footnote after this says, incident confirmed by Leonard Arrington in his Brigham Young American Moses uh, book. So I am, uh, so this is Sherry speaking now. So I am expecting you to say that we can't rely on a retelling of a story 50 years later, especially when there does not seem to be much in the way of other sources. I, excellent. That Sherry. is Sherry. Excellent. That is well done. So actually it's, it's even, it's more than 50. It's 50. So we did a little bit of uh, searching on, well, on we, who this person we, was. We'll, we'll keep going and then we'll come back. Okay. To yeah. Uh, it goes on to discuss conflicts and disagreements that were reported in the New York Times. Uh, there's some colorful language here printed in the New York Times that uh, that she semi-redacts. That's very oh, it's very redacted, funny. I think, in the actual New York Times. Oh, is it as well? Mm, yeah. Oh, oh, very good. Um, but in 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 the essence of it, that uh, John Taylor and, and Brigham Young, you know, get in an argument, and Brigham Young you know, calls him a, a GD SOB. Yes. Yes. That's right. According to the New York Times. Um, And it goes on to talk about a a public clash in front of the St. George Temple in front of 2,000 astonished and appalled faithful um, uh, there um, in front of the the temple. Um, Anyway, she, she goes on to just talk about trying to get an understanding of was there really this conflict between these two men and uh, what what of it? In, she has kind of this family lore legend that kind of comes through as their direct descendants of John Taylor. Obviously, they're they're caping up for John Taylor as they're talking about Brigham with his crumpled shirt and his soup stains. <laughs> he's just he's just spilling zupas all over him while he's <laughs> ranting and cursing. Um, anyway, but so I, I think this is so this is a great and thoughtful email that asks a question that Sherry thought we would never read, never yeah. respond so, to. So in your face, Sherry, yeah, what do you she think of da- that? She dared us. Yeah, she you know what? Us. Yeah, there you go. But so so anyway, there's there's lots of kind of interesting things here, and you and Garrett has already talked about this, but you you are looking at this um, a little bit more skeptically now than than before, and so. Garrett's looked up some stuff that I think. Well, and I think that's interesting. You know, I, I, my wife always says that when we go on tour, Angie always says that I'm a dream crusher. And I think she just means that's our marriage. (laughs) But also, she means that um, church history tours, not like the. No, no. (laughs) No, if we go anywhere, when we leave the house, she says, just so you know, you're a dream crusher. You know, and uh, I'm just sorry when you said going on tour. I just want well, to... yeah, I don't when when we are leading church history tours. That's right. Okay, um, um, and and that's because look, sometimes you can't know things definitively, and and a lot of the times in history you can only know what the sources say, and so I feel like sometimes people listening to the podcast are also, you know. You know, ha- having their dreams crushed because they think something is a certain way, and yeah, then you find hey, out that it's not. Hey, Garrett, this means more to me than anything else. What are your thoughts? That well, did never Sherry, actually it never happen. <laughs> no. Well, so you know, uh, you'll notice part of that um, where it talks about you know this interview in 1935, and that it was verified by by Leonard Arrington. Well, um, that that book, Leonard Arrington, is a fine, fine, fine historian. And um, you'll you'll notice actually though that there's actually a pretty there, while the the thoughts are kind of similar and it's obviously the same person giving the interview, it, they're actually pretty 
pretty different. I mean, you know, given the fact that we have so many people losing their minds over slight differences in the uh, multiple accounts of the first vision, people should have a problem with the very different accounts that are given here. So, uh, you know, Richard read the one that was in the, uh, um, the papers, uh, of John Taylor. And, um, this is, uh, what it is in Leonard Arrington's uh, book, um, talking about Brigham Young's personality. Um, he says he was in his office on one occasion discussing some business with a family. The door had been left ajar. A group of people walked by and Brigham noticed the tall, handsome, immaculately dressed figure of John Taylor, president of the quorum of the 12 apostles. Now, if that is accurate, John Taylor wasn't president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles until April of uh, of eighteen seventy seven, so just a few months before Brigham Young dies. If 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 that aspect of it's accurate, because um, we've mentioned before on this uh, podcast, but you would have to do searching for it through the index that we don't have to find where we said it, or just. Buckle up. We're going to say it again. Just just listen to all of them again. Yeah, we're, we, we have like seven things we say. We're going to say yeah, it again. We're going to say it again. That's what most of our premium content is going to be, is just us saying it again. Only this time with a little more gusto. I plan on altering my voice to make it a little more, you know, to make it sound more like a movie, you know, theater. And I plan to wear a crumpled shirt with soup stains on it. <laughs> well, how would that be any different than what you're doing now? Anyway, so... The account that he has here um, is, uh, who was president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. In a voice hardly muffled, Brigham exclaimed, well, if there isn't Prince John. Now, notice that's the, the, uh, the negative thing that was shouted out is entirely different. Bo Brummel versus yeah. Prince John. And Bo Brummel, if you're wondering, was, um, it was, it, he, he was a, uh, uh, like an advisor to uh, one of the one of the English kings in the eighteen hundreds, and you know he was well known for his fashion and you know you know being a dandy you know so called that negative idea, and so it does make it into the American lexicon of of someone being a Beau Brummel as you know someone being you know a fancy lad a fancy yeah, being very very concerned yeah. about fashion and the whatnot, but there is a pretty big difference between that right well if it isn't Prince John. Now, if it's the same person saying it, well, it's a little different. We also don't have any soup stains in this description here, but uh, the elegant tailor overheard the remark and came back to say, as a person, Brigham Young, you can be awfully small, but I still respect you as a great leader. Now, that is very different. Very different. Than, so, Richard, read the other one to begin. Uh, yes. I sustain you in your office as prophet, seer, and revelator, but he added, I despise you as a human being. Then, with a curt good day, sir, he turned on his heel and marched out. So, you can already tell that the one account that's uh, given in the papers of, of John Taylor is embellished by a lot of detail that is not in the account that is coming from the Leonard Arrington. And by the way, the Leonard Arrington account, according to his footnotes, um, is coming from uh, an August 21st, 1947 account. And this is where we find out who it is. William R. Wallace, son of Utah pioneers and noted Utah irrigation engineer, 
who said that as a boy, he was a personal witness to the episode. Well, uh, William R. Wallace was, was born in 1865. Now, Brigham Young dies in 1877. So that kind of gives you an idea of where our range actually is of how old he would have been to have witnessed this conversation. So no older than 12. Uh, younger than 12. At the very least, younger than 12. And, you know, most likely not at the very tail end. Certainly not in the last couple months when Brigham Young isn't in the office at all because he's feeling so sick from his, his growing his growing. So the, the comment that Sherry makes is 50 years later. It's, it's almost 60. It's 58 years. Yeah, it's now. almost six. And, and so, and for 1947 is even later, right? So for 1935, now it's the, the account we're getting from the actual historian, which is, which is Leonard Arrington is an interview he got, you know, you know, 70 years after what Brigham Young dies. Is that what it is? Yeah. So what's interesting though, is that, so it's possibly gives one in 35 and then Absolutely. Gives one whatever later, but then the difference is pretty dramatic. They're pretty dramatic. Now, is it possible that the, uh, that Samuel Taylor kind of added some of that other stuff? Well, if it, if he did, well then that makes this story even less reliable because part of what that story relies on is the detail of it, right? Oh, there he was in his soup stained shirt. These men couldn't have been more different, right? Well, is that what the author is writing into the story to try to give it more of attention? Or is there great evidence of that? In any case, at best, what do you have? You have a child, we're going to say nine to 11, probably. We, we actually don't know. I mean, for all I know, it could be six. I mean, when he's remembering this who's trying to appropriate an interaction between two very well-respected adults. And I would guess that that child, especially since they just so happen to be in there and the door just happens to be ajar, does not see regular interaction between Brigham Young and John Taylor. In fact, I would guess there are very few children that aren't actually Brigham Young's own children or John Taylor's own children, and even them they're not going to see regular interaction between the two in the office when they run into each other. So th- there's a couple of things though that are, are interesting as well. So after, after uh, a good day, sir, from, and he clicks his heels and yeah. walks away, yeah. Brigham grins and resumes the conversation with the child. Or the child's family, I, I'm guessing. Well, yeah. uh, we, again, res- resume the conversation with my informant yeah. is what it right. says okay. there. Uh, so maybe it's with the family, but at yeah. least talk to them again. Uh, who told me, so the informant, who told me this was a typical of the manner in which the two men said good morning. Right. So how was the child in Brigham Young's office every morning? <laughs> right. 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 I mean, uh, so you can kind of see already there's some real issues here. But even the Brigham grin is one of those things where, I mean, the busting of chops. So maybe it's happening and he's just being sarcastic with him. Of course, that's the case. And then there's also the case that you know, nine to 10 to 11 year olds, they may not be the best appropriators of sarcasm. <laughs> um, as we were talking about this, I was going to discuss the fact that my nine year old uh, believes that there are two elves that come to our house every, every December and that they move around in the middle of the night and they uh, well, she believes this because it's it's what happens, Karen. right? But th- but that's exactly that's right. exactly but right. That's what she believes, um, and and so you know 
that kind of gives you an idea in, into the insight of of a child. Um, the there so there's a lot of questions there, and and when we say well, there are lots of times there are these interactions. Well, then you would expect then you would find multiple people describing that. Now, the other source that there was a public dispute that that is found in the the New York Times is also a pretty sketchy source as well. One of the reasons why, and look, you can talk to uh, probably the greatest living scholar there is on Brigham Young is Ron Esplin, uh, who was the 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 leader of the Joseph Smith Papers Project at the church and is working on the Brigham Young Papers right now, and. Um, he rejects that that uh, New York Times quote, which was, by the way, thoroughly anti-Mormon at the time. I mean, they were... At the time. Well, I, I don't want to make any comments about now, but at the time, I mean, they published antagonistic things about the Mormons the entirety throughout the, the 18. I mean, from the time they start, uh, you can go back to their archives. I think you can get to the New York Times archives all the way back to like 1850 or 51. Type in Mormon, and every one of those is negative. But the the other aspect of that, that, you know, Ron Esplin is going to, to take a dispute with is the fact that Brigham Young does curse. I mean, look, he, he, he is willing to, to say things, but taking the Lord's name in vain is not one of those things that you find him doing. He'll certainly say that people, you know, are headed to the nether regions and that they will be, you know, stopped the way a body of water is at times stopped by a large edifice, but with another letter added to the end. Um, he, he will certainly say that, um, but just that was is very much out of character. And in this, we actually get, if it, you, there's actually a place you can get to go listen to a discussion slash debate it's not a, a direct debate because what it really is is the author of um, this biography of uh, uh, John Taylor. He presents this information at a Sunstone conference. Now, Sunstone's a, an organization. I don't want to characterize it too much, but it, it uh, let's just say at their conferences, it would be a very uh, normal thing to have someone presenting. Uh, on you know different anime depictions of the first vision kind of thing. I mean it, it and it's generally negative and 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 generally antagonistic towards the church. It wasn't always the case. It, you know it was founded by some some pretty rigorous scholars and things like that. But it, things kind of ebbed downhill. And you know that's not to say that there's not some good scholarship that's done there now. It's just that well. When you when you read the proceedings of their conference, it's not it is uh, it is certainly a, 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 an eclectic and usually negative towards the church uh, group. But um, back in the 1980s, um, there was uh, this discussion was held at the conference um, by uh, the author here um, of of Never Friends, you know, uh, John Taylor and Brigham, where he presents this information. And in response to that paper, so the appendix that you read, Sherry, Ron Esplin gets up and refutes that appendix essentially point by point. And, and he's very kind. Ron is one of the kindest people in the world. And so he doesn't want to say what becomes obvious by the time you're done listening to what he has to say. And that is that, um, you know, 
Taylor has allowed his status as a family member of John Taylor and his desire to write a good story to be more important than the facts that are involved. Um, you can, you can find that, um, uh, that, uh, recording it's called never friends, Brigham Young and John Taylor. It's on sunstone.org. Um, and it's January 1st, 1982. And you can, you can listen to the whole thing and, and Ron will present, uh, several of these things. So that's what I would say in, in terms of researching about this, um, these two are working in close proximity with one another for, uh, you know, essentially 40 years, right? And if the only anecdotal stories we have about them despising one another or definitively saying that they were never friends um, is one 9 to 11-year-old boy's reminiscence about an event that occurred half a century earlier that that's or an anti-mormon new york times hit piece against the mormons in utah i i don't know that that's the best source now is it is it still possible sure it's possible it's possible that that boy you know heard either him say here comes prince john or here comes boy brummel i mean both i guess are supposed to be negative but even though you're saying you're now putting in quotes brigham young obviously said one or he said the other right which did he say um and the one is much more angry and I despise you and da, 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 da. And the other one is much more like, ah, you can sometimes be a small man. I don't know if those things are said tongue in cheek. Frankly, I don't know if they're said at all, but we don't have evidence, um, in the documents, in the letters they write back and forth to one another, in the way they talk about one another in their own private, uh, journals and their own private um, records where this seems to be the case. I would say one of the biggest evidences that whatever their relationship is, it is not something that Brigham Young and John Taylor despise one another is the fact that at the end of Brigham Young's life, now Brigham Young's life came to an end suddenly. It did not come to an end um, it, it wasn't, uh, something where he was, you know, uh, obviously he, you know, he's, he's so old, he's going to die. In fact, he went from being very vigorous to within the space of a few weeks, uh, becoming ill. And then most, uh, you know, most historians trying to play guess the medical condition after the fact say that he likely died of what, you know, he had an infected appendix that then ruptured and that that's most likely what killed him. Now, I there are very few things about Brigham Young that I can speak to with very great personal knowledge, but one of them is a ruptured appendix because that happened to me. And I will say it is something that you do get progressively sicker and you're in more and more pain. But when the rupture itself happens, now, you know, you, you only have a little bit of time to start doing, uh, you know, modern medicine techniques to try to save somebody. They of course don't have any antibiotics. They don't have the ability to drain the, you know, the infection out. Uh, and, and, you know, people die from ruptured appendix all the time uh, back then. So, um, it, what I, that all that is a preface to say that when Brigham Young reorganizes 
the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Um, he he does this in uh, eighteen seventy five. Um, so just two years before his death. So this is this is near the end of Brigham Young's life, but Brigham Young doesn't know he's near the end of his life. Orson Hyde has been the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles ever since Brigham Young took over the leadership of the church. Orson Hyde was the president of the Quorum for over 30 years, well, almost 30 years. What, 28 years, I guess, is what it is that he was president of the Quorum of the Twelve? And then Brigham Young makes the decision to reorganize the quorum. And he reorganizes the quorum on the basis of if you were an apostle who left the quorum because you left the church or you were excommunicated or dropped from the quorum because of sin or something like that, and then came back, which is the case with Orson Hyde. Orson Hyde was a member of the church, sorry, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He was one of the original members of the Quorum of the Twelve. And he apostatizes when uh, the Missouri violence takes place. Um, In fact, he's one of the people who writes an affidavit claiming that Thomas Marsh's uh, negative accounts of Joseph Smith are true to his knowledge. So he's dropped from the quorum, he's excommunicated from the church, but then he's brought back relatively quickly. And he's put back into the quorum of the Twelve. This also happens with Orson Pratt, who is excommunicated in 1842 and then brought back into the church uh, by the end of that year. Both men resume their place in the Quorum of the Twelve, and by the end of Brigham Young's presidency, again, no one knows it's the end, certainly he's getting older, but there's no reason to know it's the end. In 1875, Brigham Young reorganizes the Quorum on the basis of when you last came into the quorum. So if you were in the quorum and then you were dropped from the quorum for apostasy or excommunication or whatever and then brought back in, your seniority in the quorum restarted. It didn't just pick up where you left off because you weren't in the quorum for that time. It makes sense, but what it did and what Brigham Young knew that it did was it dropped Orson Hyde, who was on by all accounts, very, very good terms with Brigham Young. As the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, he went from being the president of the Quorum of the Twelve to not being the president and John Taylor being elevated to the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. That change in 1875 is the reason why John Taylor is third, we know. Yeah, you you can sing the song, the reason why he's third, is because Brigham Young reorganized the Quorum of the Twelve that had been Orson Hyde at the head of it for 28 years. Think about that. Now, one of the great things, I don't know how Orson Hyde reacted to it. It seems like he reacted like a champ, though. He he. The very next time he spoke in conference, he praised Brigham Young as a prophet. He didn't, you know, we don't get grumblings of, and they took it away from me, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, much like, you know, there was grumbling when, uh, when president Uchtdorf was taken out of the first presidency, which is something that happened all of the time back in the past, people served in presidencies and they were not in presidencies. We just got so used to people staying in presidencies until they became a prophet or died that when, uh, president Oaks was called to the presidency and, and elder Uchtdorf, um, went back into the, the quorum, uh, there were a lot of people very upset, you know, of course, when they talked to 
Elder Uchtdorf about it. He, he was fine with it, right? Um, sometimes people are more upset for people than the people themselves are about whatever happened. And, and to me, that's a really good example that however they got along with one another. And again, so we don't have great evidence of them not getting along. They seem to be affectionate in their personal correspondence with one another. They certainly work together on everything. Brigham Young is adamant that he's going to do whatever Joseph Smith wants him to do. And John Taylor is right with him on that. Yeah, we're going to do everything that Joseph Smith wants him to do. They're both absolutely devoted to Joseph Smith. And I think that is the foundation of their relationship as well as in the gospel. The idea, oh, they come from completely different worlds. Well, a lot of people come from completely different worlds and and get along just fine. I mean, th- this idea that that well, you know, Brigham Young, he you know he was from the hard scrabble life, and John Taylor, you know, he was from some kind of ri- that that's that's very much overplayed to begin with. Uh, you know, um, uh, John Taylor is not exactly coming from a a rich family. Uh, you know, and 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 Brigham Young's you know his family's better off than Joseph Smith's is. So, I mean, at this kind of the, even that is something that's kind of played up into the mind. Um, at the same time, look, they're, they're together serving together for 40 years. And of course they disagree on things. Of, of course there are times that Joseph and Brigham don't agree on everything. We, we have lost in the church, in, at least in, 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 in some of the ward councils that, that I've been a part of, we have lost at times our ability to disagree without being disagreeable. We just have. And uh, to the point where, and I've talked about this before when we talked about the Council of 50 Minutes, that Joseph is teaching the entire point of having a council is to disagree with each other. Like it's literally the point. The only point of getting 10 people in a room and saying, let's talk about X is for everyone to have a different idea. There's no point in calling everyone together to have everyone say, yeah, whatever he said, that's it. You know, that's what we're doing. First person who spoke, that's all that we're doing. But in reality, that's often how it is. And some of you served in ward councils or in, or in, in class councils, or maybe even your, your relief society presidency or whatever you, you've had that experience where there's so much pressure to just go along with whatever the first thought that's thrown out is. What, what is the, it's one of my favorite quotes on councils. Uh, I, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but th- that you disagree long enough. Yeah. The reason why men fail to accomplish a great object is they never agree in their councils to disagree long enough to select the pure gold from the dross by the matter of investigation. That's beautiful. I think pretty close to that. But the, but the idea that Joseph has for a council is the entire point is you get eight different people, 10 different people, five different, whatever, who of course have different ideas. But we, we kind of get to the point where if someone were to present a different idea from ours, we take it personally. And, and, and to the point where I, I would just, let me confess for myself. I don't want to indict anyone else, but I have sat in councils where someone has said, well, I think we should do X. And in my mind, I thought that's, that's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. We literally tried exactly what he's saying 
in my last ward, complete and total failure. It was a total boondoggle, didn't work at all, and it upset a whole bunch of people. That's what I'm saying in my mind. Do you know what I say out loud? Sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Richard, have you ever had an experience like that? No, because I'm not fake. You know what? You know what? Never friends. (laughs) Never friends, Richard and Garrett. Never friends. I'm here wearing a a cravat. I've got a soup stain on my shirt. It's actually a mod pizza stain. No, no, no. Well, so of course, so I've I've had, I've been on both sides of this in in different uh, meetings and councils and things. And I will say one one of my favorite good examples. I, I've absolutely been where that's that's at, and 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 you don't want to, you know, somebody who's really excited and passionate about a thing. Um, you maybe want to say, hey, well, hey, you know, maybe this thing. But uh, I I've been in councils too where I've had an idea about doing a thing, or I've agreed with somebody having an idea of doing a thing. And then we will have um, one particular case we had, uh, this was even just relatively recently, the Relief Society president come from a completely different perspective and be able to share something that I hadn't thought of before. And it ended up coming from uh, what we thought was something good and making it, I think, much, much better. And that's 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 a best case of kind of what you want. Well, I hadn't thought of that perspective. That's a really great point. And then, you know, hopefully you come with some basic idea and then it ends leaving better. Right. And and that's how a council, you know, will work when it's at best is everyone's ideas are listened to. Everyone's ideas are are valid. But but it's right after each idea is presented that people then, you know, start to play the political games in their head, right? Oh, if I say that I don't think that's a good idea because of what happened in my last ward, it might really hurt brother so-and-so's feelings because he really likes it. But he doesn't realize that we tried this once and it didn't work. But you know what I mean? Well, maybe I'll just let him try it and it'll fail. I mean, you're doing all that kind of mental gymnastics in your mind of of, of what to say and not to say. And so in general, it seems that these councils that they held back in the day, they were pretty direct with each other, you know, if they agreed or didn't agree. And frankly, while you have Brigham Young and Orson Pratt disagreeing a lot in many of the records, but still loving one another and, and supporting one another, you don't get that from our sources. You don't have from our sources, Brigham Young and, and John Taylor clashing with one another. In fact, you have John Taylor almost always supporting Brigham Young when Brigham Young is proposing something. So look, but you know, maybe they weren't hanging out with each other. Well, they seem to be, I mean, they, they have dinner at each other's houses. They you know what I mean? I, it's such a hard thing to try to discern from the past what someone's relationship is. Think about your own relationships. Okay. I want you to think about 10 of your friends. And if you don't have 10 friends, I want you to pretend that Richard and I are your friend. Now, now, now you've got zero friends, No, but no, think about your, think of 10 of your friends, go look on your text messages and look at what the last thing you sent to, to the last 10 of them was. I'm, I, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm you don't have very, friends. I'm, well, I'm very yeah. mean to the seven friends. Well, that right. I, okay. So there, so there you go. I mean, I do it what tongue if, in cheek. What lovingly. if all we had. What if the world blows up tomorrow? I'm not saying the world's blowing up tomorrow. Thank you for all of you preppers. But what if it did? And, and you know, the alien race that finds the remnants, they find your cell phone and all they have is the last text you sent to each of those friends. They would think that I hated your guts. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be right. 
but it would be a logical conclusion because it's the only thing they have. So sometimes conclusions that are drawn from history are logical. They are, they, they make sense because it's the only source that we have. And they're also wrong. Uh, I've used this example uh, before, but it, it, it bears repeating. And someday I'm going to, I'm going to partner with some new Testament scholar and write this up. Um, one of the main reasons why the gospels in the new Testament, which we're, you know, headed into new Testament here, you know, how about this? Yeah, that's good. We're doing a, we're doing a little follow him, right? Right. Yeah, well, a little bit. Well, yeah. we're, we're, a, yeah, a poor, a very, very, very poor, poor man. Man's. We're a poor, we've always said we're a poor man. Um, and, uh, one of the ways that they date the gospels, one of the primary ways of dating it is because the gospels make reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which takes place in AD 70. It is a very logical conclusion of scholars to say, well, the temple wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. All of these, all of these writers, all the gospel writers knew that. So when they write about Jesus, they write in the, the new Testament, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, right? And then it makes Jesus look like he's a prophet and, you know, but they, of course, they already know the end. Um, this is the way that biblical criticism takes place among a lot of things. I mean, people will say things like, well, the writer of, of, of Daniel, you know, already knew that there was going to be a return of the, of the Jews from Babylon, which is the reason why he's having that be prophesied because it's already happened. So he's writing it back into the, into the past. But we could take those principles and we could apply them to Doctrine and Covenants section 87. Doctrine and Covenants section 87 is the revelation that Joseph Smith receives, the Christmas day, you know, Christmas time here, Christmas day prophecy of uh, the coming of the American Civil War. And he talks about it being bloody. He talks about there being, you know, uh, slave uprisings, talking about, you know, it being, it being a, a, a a cataclysmic event starting in South Carolina, rising over the slavery question. Now that revelation was not published immediately. They made a deliberate decision to not include it in the doctrine and covenants because people in America were already kind of hating Mormons to begin with. So one way to not win friends and influence people is to say, by the way, y'all are about to start killing each other, right? But that doesn't mean it wasn't recorded. We have early, early manuscripts of Doctrine and Covenants section 87. But let's say that, you know, in the coming, you know, whatever, uh, uh, all of those early documents are all destroyed. And the alien race that comes here, I don't know, we're always going to go to aliens. Of course. The alien race that lands here uh, from, you know, from another planet, from, from, from Rigel 7, uh, they... You're turning this into the History Channel after midnight. Yeah, basically, this is ancient aliens at this point, you know. And Moroni was also an alien. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, let's say this race of aliens they find the eighteen uh, the eighteen seventy six uh, Doctrine and Covenants, which is the first Doctrine and Covenants that includes Doctrine and Covenants section eighty seven. Now, they know a little bit about Earth's history, so they know when the American Civil War was. They find among the ruins an 1844 Doctrine and Covenants, and it doesn't have DNC 87 in it. 
They find an 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, and it doesn't have DNC 87 in it. So what would the logical conclusion be of this historian slash space alien? That they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, that, that, that after the cataclysmic American Civil War, these followers of Joseph Smith wrote out this revelation claiming that he predicted the cataclysmic civil war and oh so conveniently published it 12 years after the, the well you know 11 years after the war actually happened now that would be a very logical conclusion and it would be reached on the basis of the sources that were available and it would be totally totally wrong Historians can only deal in things by way of percentages about what most likely happened in the past. Of course, it's far more likely that the followers of a person wrote back into the past that he prophesied something that came true. Why? Because people generally aren't able to prophesy things that come true. And yet, people do predict things that come true all the time. Right, whether it's a prophecy or whether it's you know what I predict that you know that Enron stock isn't going to last the way people think it is. Ah, oh, he's he's just water, you know, poo pooing it. You know, the person's like, I'm not so sure FTX is really viable. Oh, you're just wet blanket. Of course, FTX is viable, right? You, the, the reality is, even if we take God out of the equation completely, there is a reality that people do predict future events, whether they're prophets or not. On occasion, it's just incredibly unlikely to do it and to do it with precision. So a historian is almost always going to say, if I don't, you know, if I can only find this as a later evidence, well, it's most likely that they just wrote that in after the fact. But in the case of DNC 87, it would be totally wrong. It would be verifiably wrong. We have the early uh, manuscript copies of DNC 87. On top of that, we have the 1851 Pearl of Great Price where DNC 87 was published in the Pearl of Great Price. 1851. It was published four, you know, uh, uh, 10 years before the American Civil War breaks out. Similarly, I tell that to, to say as we look back on something like this, you you should have many sources that say this. When you talk about, you know, things being passed down through family tradition, sometimes family tradition is accurate and sometimes it just isn't. It can be a kind of a jarring thing when it isn't, but sometimes it just isn't. Um, certainly there is tensions uh, between the two families um, as you get into the, 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 the 20th century, because, you know, if you're a descendant of John Taylor's family, you feel like. Brigham Young and Joseph Smith are getting all the love and here John Taylor died in hiding trying to protect the church, right? Um, and so you can see how that kind of gives rise to it. You know, hey, John Taylor is important too, right? Um, you certainly see this with the descendants of Hiram Smith that uh, often the arguments they're trying to make is, hey, we spend too much time talking about Joseph. We should also talk about Hiram. And, and I'm not disagreeing. I, I think we should talk about Hiram. But it's family descendants that are making that case, right? Um, and so we just have to be wary of that, that 
someone who's trying to argue for uh, uh, something that benefits their own family history, it's something that they want to believe. In this case, we just don't have very many sources. In fact, we have one person who's giving an oral history of it half a century later on two different occasions. And those two stories, while kind of similar, are also wildly different in in almost every respect. Um, Maybe that exchange happened, but it certainly wasn't that big of an exchange to the fact that John Taylor's not writing about how Brigham Young disrespected him all the time. Right, we don't have that from John Taylor. It it really does become a problem when you're studying church history or any history, when you don't have the claim that is being made by that person themselves. I I I I hesitate to even talk about this because it's not season thirty eight. And anytime I say the word plural marriage, here we go. All right, it's yep, we're yep. in it. Let's go. Yep. Anytime I say the word plural, I see you notice I waited till the very end of the podcast. So yeah. that, oh, and we're out of time. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is right. Out of time on something that could go. Yeah. yeah exactly. Out of, of time. You. Oh, and yeah. But but let me give you an example of this. You will hear people talk about. Emma Smith's reaction to polygamy all the time. You'll hear people, especially in negative connotations, Emma was this, Emma was that, Emma was this. You don't actually have anything from Emma herself talking about her reaction to Joseph Smith's marriages. You you don't. You have William Clayton talking about it. You have Brigham Young talking about it. You have uh, uh, people interpreting. You have Eliza R. Snow talking about it. You have people interpreting uh, things that Emma Smith taught in Relief Society as her talking about it. But you don't have Emma Smith saying, I was really upset about this marriage that Joseph uh, entered into. Or I never knew about this marriage that Joseph entered into. In fact, what do you have from Emma? You have Emma claiming later in life, that Joseph never taught or practiced polygamy at all. And that places us in a really difficult position because of course we want to know what did Emma really think about this? What did she think about that? And Emma is saying that none of it ever even happened. Now historians have long since rejected that claim because there's so much evidence to the contrary especially contemporary evidence where, you know, William Clayton in his journal is talking about, you know, with Emma about how to handle hiding plural marriage, right? So, I mean, probably that, you know, William Clayton isn't just lying in his journal at the time to try to find out a way that, you know, decades later people can claim Joseph never practiced it. So so there's a reason why historians, even those who, you know, are no fans of polygamy, don't think that that's an accurate representation that Joseph never taught it. But it does mean that we are left to wonder exactly. So when people very definitively, and you hear people do it all the time, oh, Emma was really upset about this marriage. Well, how do you know that she was really upset about that marriage? Now, look, maybe she was. Certainly, she seems to be uncomfortable with plural marriage. That's what DNC 132 is telling us, right? But even that isn't Emma in her own words saying it, right? It, it, it is people saying Emma had a problem because of this or because of that. That doesn't mean that Emma didn't have a problem. She clearly did if we take all the sources that exist. But when someone definitively says, Emma was really upset about this marriage, 
they are never quoting Emma. They are always quoting someone else who is saying that Emma thought or said that. And that's just something to be aware of. I think as it goes to the wider picture, um, we'll get off of the polygamy topic as rapidly as we possibly can. Uh, although Richard's, you know, now his countenance just fell. He, was, he got all excited. He's like, oh, did we, here we go. No, did we fast uh, forward season 38? No. no. Um, um, we, when we're talking about topics where our information is limited, it's important that we don't draw sweeping conclusions. Like I said, one of the first things for me that kind of, you know, turned me off to the appendix to, is the title of it. Never friends, Joe uh, Brigham and, and John Taylor. Well, how would you ever know that? Are you documenting every year, every month of their life? Are you going through and, and, and determining, are both of them saying, we were never friends, I don't like that person? In fact, you have so little to base it on. And what do you have instead? You have them agreeing with each other when they're in council all of the time. And you have Brigham elevating John Taylor to the next prophet um, near the end of his life. That suggests to me that whatever personal problems they might have had, which again, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to that, um, that it certainly isn't enough that it actually affects you know their, their understanding of the gospel. Certainly not Brigham, since he's the one who's reorganizing the quorum, which was a really big deal. I think that um, certainly, you know, Brigham Young knew that John Taylor became impassioned. I mean, uh, John Taylor was was uh, apt to speak on the anniversary of the martyrdom every uh, June 27th or thereabouts. And, of course, John Taylor, as after 1854, he's the only person that was living uh, that was in the jail with Joseph because Willard Richards dies and, you know, takes his dozens of revolvers with him, I'm sure, to the grave. That's why we don't have any evidence of those, right? Yes. Lord Richards took all of the revolvers that he had, and <laughs> it was a very heavy. Yeah, no, no. Well, it was. Well, it would have been he heavy kept anyway. It, he kept his vest on. That's right. He kept his vest on, and that's how you didn't know that he had just just slings of bullets and 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 Blackbeard style pistols in every belt loop. Um, uh, after eighteen fifty four, when when Lord Richards dies, John Taylor's the the last living witness of those events. And there's one occasion in which John Taylor goes to speak on it and Brigham Young says, I, you know, I, I just, I don't think I can handle John Taylor speaking today because he will, he will speak about it with such passion that will rile, rile us all up, basically. I mean, uh, Brigham certainly loved the fact that John Taylor loved Joseph Smith so much. And I think all of us, you know, in the church, we we all have experiences with the fact that there are some people you get along better with than others. Um, and that doesn't mean that you despise them as a person or that you, you know, there are some people that you love as a, you know, like, you know what? I love that guy. He's the greatest guy in the whole world. I don't really want to go to game night at his house, but he's a great guy, right? That's what everyone says about me. I don't want to go to game night at his house. Well, maybe they don't say he's a great guy. Maybe they say he's a terrible guy, and I also don't want to go. My, my wife brings up several times about myself that uh, while I'm generally f fine, that when I call people, sometimes I, I 
am a little bit uh, verbose and I talk for a long time and that they're making the mental calculation, do I have 45 minutes? Right, right. right? And so so, <laughs> so when, they, when they're going to answer the phone, they're like, that's oh, Brother LaDuke. So I can either answer this and kiss watching the end of the Colts game goodbye, which by the way, if you're choosing the Colts game this year over talking to Richard, yeah. it really is a problem. That's true. But so yeah, so absolutely what you're saying is true. Yeah, I mean, so... I think this is that this is how I would look at it. I don't put any stock in that claim, and I don't do it because going through the the number of sources I've I've gone through. Now, look, I haven't gone through all of them. Anyone who tells you they've gone through every Brigham Young source is lying to you. There are there are a hundred thousand letters alone, not pages. Hundred thousand actual letters, more than that, probably. I mean, there, there's so many sources. And I've read like, I've, I've read many, many, many of them in the course of doing the Brigham Young papers. I haven't read as many of John Taylor's, though I have read hundreds of John Taylor's letters and papers, right? If it is an issue, it's so slight that to be definitive and say, oh, I know that they weren't friends to me seems to be very irresponsible. And it's exactly what, uh, Dr. Esplin says in his 1982 refutation of that article um, that that the evidence is just not there for that sweeping, grandiose claim. And a family history where someone says, oh yeah, oh yeah, I, I know they didn't like each other, just might not be accurate. And that's tough to take. It's like, no, it's been passed down to me from this person to this person to this person. But we find out sometimes that the things that are passed down, like, like the uh, what was it the menorah that you had? Yeah, that, that yeah. came across when my grand when my great grandmother came to America when she was eleven years old in nineteen twenty. Yeah. Turns out she purchased it in the Tel Aviv airport in nineteen sixty seven. Right, but she always told you that <laughs> this this was from this was from Belarus right? from, from the old country and yeah. technically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, it's from the very old country. This is all the way... The Tel Aviv Airport? Well, the Abraham old country. <laughs> yeah, that's We're right. talking about... If you go back far enough, that's where our ancestors were. Right? That's true. Yeah. And by the way, Sherry in her email handles all of this like a champ. She really does. I mean, she she recognizes that it's a sweeping statement. She tries to find other sources that verify it. They're not very good sources, and she even comes to her own conclusion. In fact, we didn't even need to do the podcast. Sherry had already answered her own question. Yeah, like, thanks, Sherry. I don't really think that's e- what- Email again. <laughs> Sherry, if you can help us do pointless podcasts going forward, I, for one, will appreciate it. Um, but I- I've tried to say this before. If you don't get anything else from this podcast, and clearly you don't, but again, remember, it's free. We do have premium content. This isn't it. <laughs> I can only imagine that the premium content, it's it's got to be so much better. Well, it's worse, but there's more of it. Okay, there's more. It's more regular, right? So if you like, it's kind of like pizza, right? That, yeah. That, you know, when pizza's good, it's really, really good. When it's bad, it's, it's, it's bad, still pretty it's still, good. It's still yeah, pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. That's what our premium content is. Our premium content is, is it's more of this, only slightly worse. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be better, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. It's more focused. Yeah. It's not. It's basically this only better or worse. Um but if it, it one of the things that that hopefully comes out from the podcast is we're just a little bit hesitant to take a historical claim uh, 
100% on the fact of its face value. Now, please don't confuse that for faith claims. A historian looks at the claim of Jesus being the Christ, of Jesus being resurrected, and a historian says, well, that's just not possible. I mean, people don't come back to life, right? Uh, Who else has ever come back to life? And certainly there's no way to measure whether or not, uh, uh, you know, Jesus took your sins away from you. How would we know that outside of all of us being dead? And I was listening to a a non-Latter-day Saint historian the other day talking about the Reformation. And and he said, the ultimate winner or of, of the Reformation is actually impossible to determine on the basis of its participants' criteria. Why? Because they believed that they were presenting the truth about how souls got to heaven or not. And how can we measure that? How do we have the ability? How can a historian measure whether or not Calvinists got into heaven more than Catholics or more than Arminians? How do we measure whether Mennonites made it into heaven more than Presbyterians? Well, someday we'll be able to measure that. But right now, uh, um, it's not measurable. And, and, And that's an important thing to understand. Oftentimes, we allow historical questions to cross the threshold into our faith questions. But faith will always get to a point where you cannot prove what you're saying. Not historically, not through sources. We can talk all day long about how many accounts of the first vision there are. But will I be able to prove or disprove that Jesus appeared to Joseph Smith by the accounts of the first vision? No. The only way to know that is through the Holy Spirit. So I hope we don't, we don't confuse those things. Jesus is your Savior, and Jesus was resurrected. And we have historical sources that talk about it. But of course, those sources are rejected by most of the world. Most of the world doesn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Then why do we accept him as the Messiah? It's not because we can prove it. It's not because we have every single source in the world that demonstrates it's the case. It's because the Holy Spirit has told us that Jesus is the Messiah. And so try not to confuse the questions we have about what took place in history, what we can prove from history, and what our faith is. They are related. The events that happened in the past are important. They are miracles. They they matter. Believe me, I'm an advocate for history mattering. But in the end, your faith needs to rest on Jesus being the Christ, Joseph Smith being a prophet of God, Brigham Young being a prophet, and on down the line. And Sherry, of course, did exactly that. You know, she said, this doesn't affect my faith at all. But I think sometimes these things do affect people. If they find out that the past they envisioned wasn't always what they thought it was, it causes them to lose their testimony of something that they never could have known through the basis of examining history anyway. The only way you can know the truth is through the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't be lazy about that. 
It can't just be all TikToks and Instagrams. If you want to learn about the past and you want to study to have the Holy Spirit speak to you, you really need to put time into it. As President Nelson has reiterated, you need to take charge of your own testimony. And you need to nourish that testimony. In this case, this wasn't a testimony issue, but I think these principles can really be applied. If you're presented with a historical claim that you haven't heard before that really bothers you, before you spend all of your time allowing that thing to destroy what it is you do believe in, stop and take a breath. Realize why it is you do believe. What are the great truths of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that you cannot get anywhere else? Do those things stop being true because you happen to be a descendant of Orson Hyde and he got dropped from being the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles? Either Joseph Smith saw Jesus Christ or he didn't. Either Moses, Elias, and Elijah appeared to him or they didn't. But no account of history, however troubling it might be to us, will change whether or not those events happened. But the only way we can know them is through the Holy Spirit. So thank you so much for the question. Thanks for joining us this week. And we look forward to to talking to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.